Okay. Good weekend. Hmm. You know what you do in camp? No, no one's going to join the clapping either. Good weekend. Sure. Last long? Nope. <laughs> How do you know? How do you know? Yeah, but it would be over even if it was only instantaneous, right? Bertrand Russell actually asked the question, how do you know that the universe, your memories included, um, wasn't created just five minutes ago? That's your question? How, so for the last five minutes you've been asking that question? Since you came into... No, but there is no forever. You came into being five minutes ago. Why five minutes? That's a long time. Yeah, it's. How would you know it's a long time? Okay, how's the how's the reading Macbeth going? It's red. Good. You ready for a Macbeth quiz? I'll tell you on Wednesday. Yeah, it's due a week from Wednesday. It's due a week from. How much do you really? How much time do you spend writing papers? That's a page a day. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you next Monday. No. <laughs> Not happening. I will tell you on Wednesday. It's due a week from Wednesday, the 24th. How many of you write papers more than a day before they're due? Seven page papers. Seven pages. Seven pages. I might, ha- I might actually get started on that sooner. Like how much sooner? Wait, is it double space? Yeah. That's only three and a half pages, actually. It's like five to seven, right? What? It's five to seven. Yeah, it's nothing. It's, it, yes. What? Is there, what is there? I will tell you on Wednesday. Don't ask you in paper. What? I'm going to die. No. Really? Why are you going to die? I mean, we are, all of us. You want the topic now? Why? No, don't do it. No, it's 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 absolutely my policy not to give people paper topics more than a week in advance. Absolute policy for as long as I've been teaching. Uh, why? Because because I want you to think generally and not focus too fast. That's why. Because the course is not, shouldn't be, even though it inevitably is, it shouldn't be about the papers, it should be about the whole shebang. Um, and it should as, be about infinity. Yeah. Um, and <coughs> as, soon, as soon as you get a paper topic, look, a lot of you know that in most classes I don't give paper topics. So this is actually very, very different from what I generally do, which is I'm going to give you a paper topic. It is a paper topic that you could definitely do um, in two days, but you'll have seven. So that's all really good. And that's five more days than you need. Five more days than you need. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Six more days than you need. Ten, nine, eight, seven. Six more days than you need. There you go. Okay, so Wednesday, paper topic. It'll be fun. <laughs> Are you really freaking out? What do you think I'm going to ask you? But what is time? Ah, yes. Is that the question? No. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a question for today's class. Time. What is time? 
Okay, so um, look, you should. How many? How far have we gotten into Macbeth? Yeah, okay, you should be rereading it. No, no, I mean, this is obviously a different version, too. I mean, it's different from the one I read. What did you read? I mean, I read the same story. It just... But did you actually read Shakespeare's Macbeth, or did you read a, a modernization? We, we had, like, the one... It was the Folgers thing. Yeah, it was the one on each side thing. Yeah, all right. Okay, so this would be, this would be the Shakespeare side you're reading for this class. I mean... <coughs> Okay, those of you who started reading Macbeth, why are we reading it? How's this for a question? Here's your discussion question for the next couple of minutes. Why are we reading Macbeth in this class? Yes, great. Because the moment is constructed that way. Because what? Because the moment is constructed Because the moment is constructed that way. Okay, the structure of the moment has us reading Macbeth. Um, how about talking about internal properties? Let, let us talk about Macbeth intentionally rather than extensionally. You could say because it's in the set of texts on the syllabus... But let's let's discuss intentionally why. Yeah. Um, it it has to do with fate and, and choices and what we can change, and then the the futility of our of our conception that we can change our fate. And, and All right. So, and what does that have to do with us? I mean, us in this class. The nature of of our existence and and its relation to to greatness or meaning or transcendence. Okay. In a way, though, that's true about everything, isn't it? Yeah. So. But then again, well, we could be reading anything. <laughs> yeah, any book out of that library, um, anyone at all. Um, did anyone go to that? Uh, oh, did I not send it out? I did send it to you all, right? The Library of Babel website about? that... Um, no. Nope. Oh, shit. That you sent me. I'm sorry, I meant to. Okay, I will. It's, pr it's actually pretty cool, a lot cooler than you would think. Right, didn't you think? Did you spend time on it? Not a lot. <laughs> How do you know? Yeah. No, I'm going to keep asking that. How do you know it wasn't a lot of time? He thinks he's, he thinks he thinks, therefore, he is. So he knows. Oh, man, you're getting ahead of, ahead of the game, aren't you? Okay, um, I will, I'll send it to you. Um, I, I actually, I thought it was good. Um, it's a website that basically every time you can you can generate a book from the Library of Babel um, every time you go onto it, and um, you can then search um, the books that are generated. But every time you generate a book, you destroy one. So, but you can search for for any text that you want in the. I think they they are about fifteen generated books at a time, and you can search um, for any text you want in those books and. It turns out if you search for five or six letter um, strings, you'll find them um, a lot in about half the books. Um, so that tells you something. I don't know what it tells you, but it's something. Um, so worth doing if you're not writing a paper or not worrying about a paper, which you won't have to until Wednesday. So you should thank me. Yes? Well, also, I mean, if you whatever refresh or go to it enough times, your paper will... Your paper will be there, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Just five days. <laughs> Say that again? Just rifle through all the books on the Library of Babel, and eventually you'll find your paper. Find the one with the correct MLA heading. Right. What, wait, Angela, what did you say? Well, if you actually do it for eternity, it'll be okay, but you will have to take it incomplete. 
<laughs> yeah, Ken. So I have a, I have an idea. We we use we use um, quant we use like radio radiological de decay to generate a random sequence of fits, um, like so truly random from the perspective of the universe. Yes. Um, we use that as our paper, and in any universe where we don't uh, pass the paper because it's you know a random string of gibberish in most of the universes that split off at that point, we destroy the universe. So the only remaining universes are those in which we, in, in which the string of fits was actually. Ah, uh, but see now you I get into like you get into deep questions about subjectivity here because would you count on your subjective self being in that universe? That becomes a really deep question about subjectivity. It's actually something we'll, we may have occasion to talk Some about. But is in him is in all the universes where we use that idea because he came up with it. Um, he did, but could would he be confident that? His own eye would be the one, but we're not. We're not going to go quite there yet. We're going to. I want to ask again. Why Macbeth right after Augustine? Do you think? Yeah. Oh no, I didn't actually have any. Oh okay. <laughs> what? Well, yes. Oh, I could. I could be bounded in a nutshell. And count myself a king of infinite space, yeah. were it not that I had bad dreams, <coughs> says Hamlet. Um, all right, so, so as you read Macbeth, and in fear of the possible quiz on Wednesday on Macbeth, on Macbeth and Pascal, um, as you read Macbeth, oh, let me just say something about Pascal. You should, there you really need to be using the Penguin edition, which the bookstore has. Um, the problem being that there are two different versions, two different arrangements of his aphorisms, and the arrangement on the syllabus, the syllabus is expecting you to use the Penguin edition, um, that arrangement of aphorisms. Um, that's a fairly new arrangement. Um, Pascal kept these notebooks. He wrote aphorisms all over the place. He put them into various um, clumps of paper and there's a huge argument about how he would have arranged them. Um, and the Penguin edition uses one arrangement. Um, they're numbered, but not by Pascal. Um, so the numbered aphorisms, the aphorism numbers that I give you in the syllabus, um, you should be using the Penguin um, to read them. OK, so uh, we will talk about Macbeth and start talking about Pascal on Wednesday. Um, go back to Augustine. I assume you brought Augustine. Yeah, could be. Could be. <laughs> could be, yeah. <laughs> could be. <laughs> it's possible. As Aristotle says, it's possible. Um, I would be ready for a quiz on Macbeth and other stuff, like Pascal. But I would definitely be ready for a quiz on Macbeth. Okay, let's look, for example, um, at um, page 161 of the Augustine. Um, this is book 11, chapter 2, if you have a different edition. Um, and what Augustine is trying to figure out, remember that, that the last thing that we talked about in class last Wednesday um, was the idea of states and the idea that the way 
Turing machines worked and the way mathematical induction worked was you were looking at a single local thing right in front of you, something that you could look at whole. Um, and you were extrapolating from that to things that you could not look at whole, to things that were farther away, and sometimes so far away that you couldn't see. So remember, the idea of math induction is if it's true of n, it's true of n plus 1 for all n. And therefore, if it's true for n plus 1, it's true for n plus 2, because n plus you could just substitute n plus 1 as your new n, and so on. So you're saying that something is true for an infinite number of cases true for 1, for 2, for 3, for 4, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to infinity. And what I compared that to was knocking down a domino and knowing that it would not, you could see easily without any doubt that it could knock down the next few dominoes, that if you knock one down, it's going to hit the second, it's going to hit the third, it's going to hit the fourth. But at some point, it feels like it shades off into faith that you're also going to be knocking down dominoes from Boston all the way to Rio if you had a bunch of dominoes between here and there. that you're, The dominoes are quickly going to um, go out of sight, but somehow you're still thinking that this same mechanism is going to keep working and working and working for thousands of miles and hundreds of thousands of miles and millions of miles that each domino, one by one, will take you to the next domino. So math induction requires that actually fairly um, strenuous thought that if something is true for n and therefore it's true for n plus 1, that those n plus 1s can go on forever. Um, that requires you to put some fairly large ideas together, even though they can be put in um, just a few words, you're still putting some fairly large ideas together. So the way we think about the non-local by extrapolating from the local, the way we look at what's right in front of us, one, it being true for one, and then seeing that if it's true for one, it's true for two. The way this domino knocks down domino number two, which knocks down domino number three. The way these two parallel lines are equidistant both here and two inches farther away here. The way we look at those things which are right in front of us and then immediately feel that we can say that this is true a hundred billion trillion miles away too, that they will be to the micron the same distance apart 100 million trillion miles away as they are right in front of us. Um, that extrapolation requires shading from the immediate and the local to the global, the universal, even the infinite. And where that shading takes place is kind of vague. Where you go from a kind of immediate self-evident certainty to a kind of certainty that you could be certain, to a kind of certainty that you could be certain, that you could be certain, etc. All of that is something that, to quote Hamlet again, since you want me to, puzzles the will, or at least puzzles the mind. 
um, you might feel, part of you might feel, of course this makes perfect sense, it's got crystalline um, clarity and purity, but part of you might feel it's just saying a whole lot of stuff based on almost nothing at all, based on only what's right in front of me. So look at what Augustine here has to say about time. This is, as I say, page 261. Um, and here he's thinking about the gospel according to John. That is the fourth of the gospels. So does anyone know how that starts? Famous beginning? Very famous beginning because it's a kind of re-beginning of Genesis. All right, so if I say biblical verse, which begins in the beginning, how do you follow that? Wait, in the beginning... Okay, uh, those are different. So, um, in Genesis, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, right? In John, it's in the beginning was the word. Is this familiar to anyone? In the beginning, can you say more, Abby? <clears throat> in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So that is the first line of the most philosophical, the highly philosophical gospel of John, um, the fourth of the four gospels that begin the New Testament. So John is, the th there are three gospels, so here's, here's just a little bit of what the um, general idea is. There are three gospels, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are gospels written by people allegedly witnesses to the stories they tell. John is much later. John um, could not have seen any of what he tells about, but John is a very philosophical writer. And so John is retelling the story, but with, and, and it's full of narrative, um, but from a much more intensely philosophical um, perspective, very strongly influenced by Greek philosophy. So John is going back to Genesis. Genesis has a word, has, uh, Genesis describes the first word spoken in the universe. Anyone know what it is? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So what John is doing is he's analyzing that, that verse. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in particular, he's analyzing the and in that concatenation of clauses. God said is one clause, has a direct object. The direct object is the sentence, the imperative sentence, let there be light. So God said something. The thing he said was a sentence. The sentence he said was, let there be light. And then having said that sentence, what was in the sentence as an imperative now became a fact about the universe as an indicative. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now what John thinks is that there's a question, can there be a gap between God saying, let there be light, and light coming into existence? In other words, God is omnipotent. Everything God says is. 
Everything that God does, he does simply by willing it. God doesn't have to decide that in order to bring something into existence, he's got to um, do a blueprint for it and gather up the materials and put them together and so on. It's the absolute, instantaneous, unmediated power of God to speak things into existence. So when God says, let there be light, what is he speaking into existence? Light, good. And so the and in John's attempt to make sense of this moment in Genesis, which the writers of Genesis um, were not um, thinking through this way. Genesis began, began being treated as an intensely philosophical work about 100 BC by the Greek, the Jewish Greek philosopher Philo. Um, but what, once it started being treated as a philosophical text, as a philosophical work, um, people started wondering, so if God says, let there be light, is there a moment where that has to take effect? Can God say, let there be light, and for an instant there's darkness, and then, ta-da, is it like fluorescent bulbs when you turn them on? You flick the switch and, oh, there. Um, or is God so immediate a power that in saying, let there be light, the saying it is the coming into existence of light. And if the saying it is the coming of existence into light, you might have a picture of this. It wouldn't be what John is saying, but it would give you a decent diagram or scheme for what John is saying. The picture might be something like, out of God's mouth comes light. That is, that for God... Let there be light, that logos, because that's the word that John uses, that logos, that speaking, is itself the speaking into existence of light. It's not that he gives an order, and then the forces of the universe make that order come true. It's that the speaking is the coming true of what it is that he speaks. So the and there and there was light, would be a kind of two ways of saying the same thing, and. That is, there are two ways to describe what happened at the beginning of time. One is to say God said, let there be light. The other is to say there was light. But those two things are really the same, two sides of the same coin. No gap between them. So it's a kind of spatial and, or it's an and showing the connection between two things rather than a temporal and. Now, most of the ands in the Bible, yeah? For me, though, my line of thinking says, well, then God's not necessary in the way John views the story, or God is implied by the fact that anything would exist or existence occur at all, that when John sees the phrase, and there was light by itself, he assumes the phrase, God said, let there be light, God will, let there be light. Well, that's why, remember what John actually writes is, in the beginning was the word. Which is his way of putting those two things together. Yeah. So the first thing is the word. The first thing is the logos. The logos is, let there be light. 
and then he uses his own and. Let me just say something about and. The Bible is very famously written. Um, any, has anyone taken biblical Hebrew? So you know what the first um, syllable of 99% of all biblical verses is? V. Which means and. Yeah. So it's very famously written in what's called a paratactic style. Paratactic which means that everything occurs, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And those ands are almost always um, in an order of events. Um, the bot, very rarely do you get, and therefore this happened, or um, for that reason something else happened. It's all just telling you event after event after event, but in order. So what John wants to do is get rid of whatever little gap of time the biblical the, the biblical and, um, generally implies and say it happened all at once. So in the beginning was the word. Now, does he mean that the word is before God? No, he says the word was with God. So why does he say word before he says God? In the beginning was the word. And the answer would be something like the answer Augustine is going to give which is that the beginning is when time started. So God exists whether time has, whether he's created time or not. But time begins when God says, let there be light. So in the beginning means at the beginning of time. Yeah. Yeah, so God, who's not a temporal being, who lives outside of time, um, creates a temporal universe. When? Doesn't matter, he just creates it. He did it in the beginning. Um, no, it's, it now exists. Or it exists. He created it. It exists. Um, could God exist without time? Yes. Could time exist without God? No. That's the idea. Um, but God exists outside of time. Um, God um, creates, well, going back to the Bertrand Russell thing, I don't think Augustine would have that much trouble with the idea that God created the past at the same time as, as he created the present. That is, um, our own naive view of the world is that history was created when we were born. That is, what happened before we were born only came into existence when we were born. That's a kind of standard child and maybe even adult solipsistic view of the world. Yeah, there's, yeah Napoleon existed, um, but really he only came into existence when I was born into a world in which Napoleon um, was given to me as part of the past history of the world into which I was born. Um, did he exist before I was born? Once I'm in the world, that's the way to put it, but to say that he existed before I existed in a, in a deeper sense makes no sense. Napoleon is part of my world. Um, if that seems too weird for you, that's okay. It's all right for it to seem too weird for you. But that's essentially the argument that the early Wittgenstein is making, um, a very skeptical argument about time um, and a very deep and, and intense argument about human experience. Um, he makes in his first book called the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. Yeah. Couldn't you say by extension that rather Napoleon came into existence at the exact moment that you first learned of his existence? Yeah, you could say that by extension. That would be more solipsistic than you need to be, mm -hmm. um, because you do believe in your own past existence as having 
already been there before you became aware of the concept of past existence. So I think it's more natural to just, you know, to the way humans philosophize. And part of the idea of this course is that philosophy is actually a natural human practice. To be a human is to be a philosopher. Um, it's more natural to the way humans philosophize to think of um, the past before their births coming into existence. I mean, people don't say this to themselves, but it's a very deep belief that they don't say to themselves, but that they never entirely relinquish. relinquish. Freud talks about a child's belief in the omnipotence of thought. Um, that is, he says, very little children think their thoughts are omnipotent. Um, they, they get disabused of this notion. It becomes pretty clear pretty early that your thoughts are not omnipotent. However, whenever you think a bad thing about someone and then a bad thing happens to them, part of your brain feels guilty because you think, because that very deep first belief that you had gets um, reactivated or um, flashes into your awareness again. So another very deep belief that we don't actually officially hold and that we are, that part of growing up and part of learning what reality is really like is that we don't really believe this, and yet some part of us always does, is the belief that there really wasn't a universe before we came into existence, but what was given to us, what Wittgenstein calls the world as I found it, but what in fact was given to us was a world with certain facts being true about it, and among those facts are facts about what the world was like before we came into existence. And we accept the, the truth of those facts, but some part of our minds thinks of those facts as being made true by our coming into existence. It's a, that's a highly idealist view of the world. Um, Bishop Barclay famously defined what it means to be. Remember I told you that um, Quine uh, asks the ontological question, what is there? And he answers, everything. Um, Quine also says that, um, also gives a definition of what being is. Being is being the value of um, a variable in an existential proposition. Is that helpful to you? Um, it would be. Um, but what Barclay said very famously is to be is to be perceived. Only those things which are perceived exist. There is no being. Nothing exists unless it's perceived. And so there's no, there's no transcendence? Because well, there is if people perceive the transcendent, sure. If God exists, he would perceive the transcendent, and therefore it would be, right? But he's, but he's basically saying something that absolutely can't be disproved. Because how would you disprove it? The only way you, dis you could disprove it is to find a counterexample. Wait, look, I found something that isn't perceived, but it exists. Look! Oh, wait. If you can see it, then it is perceived. So you can't find a counterexample to that definition of being. To be is to be perceived. And as far as Barclay is concerned, if you can't find, I mean, that's all you need to know about being. Only those things which are perceived exist. That's where the, if the tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound question? That's an important um, source of that question. 
If no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Not if being is perception, no. In fact, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to hear it, you can doubt that either the tree or the forest exist until someone comes by. Yeah? But I mean, we can still see the effects of things. That That's perception. We always perceive by effects. Okay, because I say, like, I mean, there are things, you know, like on a quantum scale that I. I you don't need a quantum scale. I perceive this board because it's not absorbing green light, and light, and the effect of that is that certain light, rate, light um, frequencies, wavelengths are bouncing into my eye. I mean, all perception is mediated. It's all, perception is always perception of effects, but it has to produce effects. What doesn't produce effects doesn't exist. That's what Barclay says. And those effects ultimately have to be perceptible ones. And you, you can't, in principle, you can't come up with a counterexample. Yeah, Joy. In philosophy, does falsifiability matter? How could you confirm or deny it? Um, so there's, do you know what Occam's razor is? So Occam's razor is always that what you want is par parsimony in explanation. That is, the uh, most parsimonious explanation is the one you should, um, that, that actually explains things, is the one you should accept. Not necessarily, there are different, re people who have very, very different um, views of why this is true nevertheless agree that it is true. That um, an explanation which explains everything, the simplest is the one you should accept. Some people will say because the simplest is likely to be the truest. Um, there's no need to find complicated reasons for simple facts. Um, others will say um, you're bringing in an idea of truth that you don't need once you have the idea of explanation. In other words, um, the idea that an explanation can explain everything but not be true makes no sense. You're just imagining there's something known as truth which has nothing to do with explanation. So there are lots of different, we're really not going to go into this. I'm, this is like all of philosophy in a nutshell, like infinite space. Um, but, but the most people accept the um, principle, although maybe for different reasons, of Occam's razor. So the basic idea, Occam was a scholastic philosopher. I think he was 14th century. And the basic idea is that um, he shaved Plato's beard. Um, Plato had this beard in which all sorts of things went in all sorts of different directions. And it was wild and tangled and in just tons and tons of explanations of different things. And Occam just came and said, we don't need all this stuff, just cut it off. Um, all you need is the simple explanation. One example, because this will come up in relativity, is Ptolemaic astronomy. Do people know how Ptolemaic astronomy works? It was the astronomy that people believed in till Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler. So the idea in Ptolemaic astronomy is the Earth is the center of the solar system. The moon circles the Earth. Um, the various planets circle the Earth. The sun circles the Earth. Then other planets beyond the sun also circle the Earth. And so Ptolemy had this um, picture, which lasted until about 500 years ago. 
of what's called the geocentric universe. Here's the Earth. Um, here's the orbit of the moon around the Earth. Then Mercury also goes around the Earth. Venus goes around the Earth. The sun goes around the Earth. Mars, etc. In various spheres. Now, if you look at the heavens, do you know what the word planet means? Why the planets are called planets? It's because it's a Greek, it comes from a Greek word meaning to wander. So do people know about the procession of the planets, that this is something planets do? No. <laughs> All right. So you know this from the moon, but you can see this. It's, more, it's somewhat more interesting than planets. You get up every day. And, or No, you don't get up. Well, you get up at dawn because you want to study for this class every day. So you get up while it's still dark. And every day you may look at a star. And what happens is every day that star um, rises um, about a degree. You'll find that star at a certain time of day a degree different in the sky, roughly, almost exactly, but not quite exactly, a degree behind where it was the day before. So a degree is very, very tiny. You know, a right angle is 90 degrees. So in 90 days, what would happen is a star that you saw straight overhead when you woke up, you would now wake up at the same time and see that star on the horizon. And so every day that star changes by a degree. If you look at the moon every night and look at when the moon rises every night, um, it rises 1 28th of a circle beyond where it rose the night before. Um, so what is that, about, about uh, 15 degrees, something like that. Um, 280 and 140, nah, um, 18 degrees. Um, so the moon is changing by 18 degrees every night so that it does a full circle every 28 days. Um, but the stars are just changing by about one degree every night. But they're all always, always changing in the same direction. That is, they're always later every night. Always. Now, planets will rise later and later every night. And then suddenly they'll kind of do a stutter step and not be rising later. And then they'll start rising earlier for a few nights in a row, or even for weeks in a row. And then they'll start rising later again. So the ancients could tell the difference between stars that always behaved perfectly predictably and then seven stars that didn't. And they call them wanderers. And the word planet means wanderer because they didn't rise later and later every night. They sometimes did, they sometimes didn't. They wandered against the background of the fixed stars. So they tried to figure out the motion of these planets. And Ptolemy came up with an extremely good picture, an extremely good predictive diagram for what you would see every night that you could look forward to months and years in advance. Ptolemy, Ptolemy could tell you where the planets would be, where the stars would be. Now, what he had were what were called, he said, so essentially, 
things move around the Earth. You know that people knew the Earth was round back to classical antiquity, right? This isn't something, oh, I think the Earth is round, said Columbus. You're crazy, said his friends, but he was right. Um, people knew it all the way back to Archimedes. Um, did, do you all know that? That they knew it because shadows were different. Um, well, the deeper you went down into hulls, but also that if you built a, that a pillar um, in Damascus and a pillar in Athens on the same day of the year, the same height um, that was perfectly, um, that, that went up perpendicularly to the ground, cast a shadow of a different length in a different direction. And just by comparing those things, by measuring, they knew the Earth had to be round because if it were flat, that wouldn't happen. Um, so they'd actually figured that out. In Shakespeare, since we're talking about Shakespeare, there's a moment where Puck says in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon, do people know A Midsummer Night's Dream? So Oberon is king of the fairies and Puck is his go-to fairy. And, um, Why? Nobody oh, knows. Sorry? <laughs> Why he is, nobody knows. Oh, he's great. He's snarky so, so Oberon sends Puck to go get something from the Antipodes, which is the other side of the earth. And Puck says... Um, I'll go right away. I'll put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes. So what he basically says is, I'm going to get all the way to the other side of the earth, to the Antipodes, in 40 minutes. Um, that's how long it would take. Now, what Shakespeare knew, because he'd been talking to the great mathematician um, Harvey, was that they, they were wrong about the diameter of the Earth. They thought it was somewhat smaller than it actually is. Shakespeare knew that 80 minutes was what a geocent, what, what um, orbiting the Earth would take you if you weren't hitting escape velocity. So now it's 90 minutes. If you go look at the space shuttle, it goes around the Earth every 90 minutes. Um, in Shakespeare, they thought it was 80 minutes, and Puck is actually alluding to that in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, 40 minutes to get halfway round. Um, so this is stuff people were interested in. You may not be, but Shakespeare was. Okay, so the problem then, so Ptolemy says everything is going around the Earth, and circles are nice. Circles make sense. What? Sorry, um, we don't understand. So is it, eight, like, to get to the other side of the Earth, that's not, like, why is it 40 minutes? Any faster, and he hits escape velocity. Velocity. Okay. Velo velocity. velocity. I meant to say that. Velocity. Escape velocity. <laughs> yeah. You can't. Escape velocity is when you're no longer orbiting the Earth. Oh, okay. But you go off into space. Yeah. What if you're... So orbit is falling, is, is perpetual falling, right? Everyone knows that? No? You didn't know that? The reason things... Everyone knows... Puck's Wait, not a fairy. Oh yes, he is. No. Yes. No, he's not. He's like an elfish boy. Puck's not a fairy. He's Oberon's go-to, but he's not a fairy. Yes, he is. No. Yes, fairies skip hence, Titania says, to her retainers, which means all their followers are fairies except for the, um, except for the changeling, the Puck. The Indian boy, the Indian boy yeah. But Puck, no, if you look Puck up on everything that's, that talks about Puck, he's not a fairy. <laughs> and where do they find out? About Puck? Just ask Shakespeare. <laughs> the same place that you did? Midsummer Night's Dream? Exactly. Yeah. And so they would be wrong. There are <laughs> other traditions with Puck in them, but Shakespeare is completely violating those traditions in a Midsummer Night's Dream. In other words, Shakespeare didn't invent the character of Puck. Puck is a folk character. 
Um, but what Shakespeare does with Puck is completely original. So, but it also doesn't matter. So, Puck it. Um, <laughs> perpetual falling. Perpetual falling. That's what orbiting is. Um, so what happens is the moon is above the earth and it's falling towards the earth, right? All the time it's falling towards the earth. But it's always missing. And the reason it's missing is because it also has horizontal velocity. So it's falling towards the earth, but it's also heading, so let's say it's directly overhead. It's falling towards us, but it's also got velocity in this direction, and there's no friction because it's in space. So it's falling like this, the way things fall. The reason the chalk falls is I've given it horizontal velocity. That horizontal velocity, except for friction, doesn't, this chalk doesn't throw, slow down as I'm throwing it, but gravity is pulling it to the ground. Now, if I threw this chalk at 17,000 miles an hour, that would be very impressive. No, it didn't work. If I threw it, and it could pierce through the wall, and it could pierce through the wall, if I could throw it at 17,000 miles an hour, it would be over the horizon by the time it got down to the ground. And except it wouldn't hit the ground because the ground would also have curved over the horizon. So that curve, that parabolic curve that it's making, that parabolic curve, if I threw it fast enough, would be following the circle of the Earth. It would be following the roundness of the Earth. That's what things in orbit do, is they're going fast enough that they follow the curvature of the Earth as they fall. So they're always falling towards Earth, but Earth is always falling away from them at the same speed. And that's why they're in orbit. Always falling and always missing because Earth itself is curving away. Their curve downward, they're falling downward, but that fall is a curved fall because they're also going um, horizontally. And the combination of those two motions means that they're always following the curve of the Earth around the Earth. The speed you have to do to do that is 17,000 miles an hour, which means for the 25,000 miles of earthly circumference, it's 90 minutes. Um, Shakespeare and Harvey knew that it was 17,000 miles an hour, um, but they didn't know what the diameter of the Earth was. So they thought it was 80 minutes rather than 90. And that Shakespeare gets that into A Midsummer Night's Dream. Ridiculous. I think it's cool, actually. Five minutes off? There's just one place in Super Mario Galaxy yeah. where you can actually jump into orbit for a little while. Where is this? Super Mario Galaxy. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. Shakespeareans um, put that together. Yeah, Abby. Because they know how long it takes to, for something that's, they know how long it takes for something to fall. And they know, they, basically, it's if it takes two seconds to fall from here to the ground, then in two seconds you have to get it far enough away that the ground itself has dropped. Let's say this is four feet. Um, you have to get the chalk far enough away that the ground is four feet lower. So you throw it so that in two seconds it's far enough away that the ground is four feet lower, and then it will have fallen four feet, but so will the ground, so it'll still be four feet above the ground. 
Okay? That's why all low-level satellites orbit the Earth at 90, mi 90 minutes in orbit. Yeah? Um, and there's, there's sort of a complicating factor. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in, that, um, in that as you go around the Earth, the direction of the Earth's gravitational pull on you is changing. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess, I guess it, the, par the parabolic approximation for getting this number works for small heights. Which is, of course, what we've been saying. Yeah. So, never mind. Okay. <laughs> All right. The, you know, and what you were taught in grade school is, you know, when you when you throw a lasso around your head, it's the same thing, and it is because what you do when you when you lasso something um, is that you're pulling it, but even as you're pulling it, you know, you feel the strain on your arm, which means your arm is is pulling back, but it's also moving horizontally, so you're constantly pulling it towards you, but it's constantly um, centrifugally going away from you, and the balance of those forces is a circle around you. Wait, what? You're lassoing yourself? Now, if you take a yo-yo and just twirl it over your head, That's right? Maybe you should do something soft. Take your headphones and twirl them over well, your head. That might break the wires. Yeah, That's, that would be the force we're talking about. Okay, so what Ptolemy said, since there's a reason for this, what Ptolemy said was, okay, so it's not that things go in perfect circles around the Earth, because some do, some don't. But if they don't go in perfect circles, then what they do is they go in circles around a point that's going in a perfect circle. So instead of going in a perfect circle around the Earth like this, where, where the desk would be the Earth, what they do in a kind of dancing motion is they make a circle around a point that's going in a perfect circle around the Earth. And those are called epicycles. And if that doesn't quite explain where you're going to find them, then they make a circle around the point that's going in a circle around the point that's going in a circle around the Earth. And if you add enough epicycles, you can predict where every heavenly body will be by saying it's circles within circles within circles, or as it's sometimes put proverbially, wheels within wheels. So if you ever hear that proverb, like, I don't know why you're doing that. It makes no sense to me. You must be doing something really sneaky. Yeah, wheels within wheels. That comes from Ptolemy. Now, the thing about Ptolemy is he's just as right as Newton. There's no reason to say that Newton is right and Ptolemy is wrong, except that Newton gives you an insanely simpler way of picturing what the heavenly bodies are doing. But these are both pictures. There's no such thing as space. Newton thought there was, but let's leave that out. Um, there's no such thing as space, which is fixed, and this really is what things are doing against the background of space. There's just some emptiness, which doesn't have any speed, and therefore nothing can be measured. If you had one object in space, if you had a universe with only one object, you couldn't say whether that object was moving or still. It's just 
an object in the universe, and our picture of, an, of a universe with only one object is we'd want to kind of think of it as either moving or still. Um, but it would make no sense to ask that question. If you have two objects in the universe, you couldn't say one was still and the other was moving, if they were moving with respect to each other, or that they were both moving. You just wouldn't know. There is no such thing as motion except with respect to other objects. Yeah. 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 So the question is, if it can, can you, can you, as Aristotle wants you to, make motion the um, the thing that you most think of? Look, there's an example of this. It may be the case that the most basic concepts are not the easiest ones to understand. So some of you, if you've taken logic, you know that it's possible. Logic uses a bunch of um, different um, operators. There's something called or, where if you say A or B, that is, um, you're saying either A is true or B is true or both. So A or B means that at least one of those things is true. A and B, I mean, we should use P and Q, but A and B means both of them are true. Not A and B means either A or B or both are false. Not A or B, with A or B in parens, means both A and B are false. So these are, these are uh, basic ways of um, translating um, essential logical ideas of and it turns out, and this is one of the things you learn very early in logic, is that with just the idea of and, and just the idea of not, you can get every other logical idea in first order logic. Um, can you describe AND gates and NOT gates? Go ahead. Um, so basically, um, in, in, if you're trying to build a computer, um, let's say you're trying to build a computer, um, like the one that's made out of Tinker Toys that plays tic-tac-toe in the science museum. Um, I just really like that computer. <laughs> Anyhow, um, you can. Um, you can you have an AND gate that basically it outputs you have you have something that looks like like the following. So you have two inputs and one output. Everyone um, see that? And basically um, you have some circuit element, um, call it a transistor or a vacuum tube, if you're feeling old school, um, which uh, when, when there's voltage on both of the <coughs> in terminals, it outputs, uh, you get voltage on the out terminal. And when there is... Um, so if you have two things saying yes or saying one or saying there's voltage here, you get an output saying yes. And, and that means both and. There's voltage coming from both. Right. So you have the threshold of it set such that um, you need voltage from both um, in order to get an output of yes or one. So that's what a computer means by and. Right. And a NOT gate simply, you know, you have one input, one output, and the input, um, if, it's, if it's true, you get out false. If it's one, you get out zero, and vice versa, zero to one. Yeah. 
So it reverses it. So basically, you can do all the logic in a computer using AND gates and NOT gates. You don't need anything else. Uh, can you describe a NAND gate? A NAND gate um, is a NAND gate is um, if you can't, it's fine. Of, is negation of AND, right? Right. So that means that it only outputs one when both of the outputs are zero. Mm -hmm. um, and you can build a NAND gate by putting a NOT on the output of an AND gate, or a NOT on each of the inputs of an AND gate. The same. Yeah. The end. Um, okay. Now the the thing conceptually about a NAND gate. N-A-N-D. I don't think they take it in Scrabble, because they're jerks. Um, but who knows, maybe they do. Um, conceptually, okay, so our words, or, and, not, um, those are words that are just part of our normal everyday language. Every language has words that mean those things. We have a little trouble with or, because sometimes it means either or, that is, but not both, or can sometimes mean not both. That is, I'll be there today or tomorrow. Um, means one or the other, but not both. Yeah, but in logic, generally, or means um, certainly one and maybe both. That's what or means in logic. So the book Moby Dick or the Whale doesn't mean, well, I'm reading one of two books. Not two books at once, of course, but I might read Moby Dick tonight or I might read The Whale tonight. Um, it's just two names for the same book. So that's the logical or. That's the way or is usually used in logic. The natural languages all have those words, and, not, and, or. Um, and you can get all of logic from it. In the 20th century, a couple of people, Peirce and Sheffer, came up with a simpler way of doing logic. Instead of getting everything from and and not, they introduce what's called a Sheffer stroke. Do you know what it is, Jennifer? Uh, yeah, it's a... It's a, it's a single operator. Oh, yeah, and then there's the... Um, it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what the Sheffer stroke is, is if you say P, Sheffer stroke Q. Okay? So it's... If you're formalizing logic, now you don't need or, and, and not. All you need is one single stroke. And what that stroke is, what it means is either not P or not Q. That is, not both of these are true. Okay, now that's how we interpret it. But as a purely formal thing, we're just looking at two propositions with this stroke between them, and it means that not both of these will output something, output a T. So you can get all of, all of first-order logic from that because you can say either not P or not P, means the same thing as not P. So you can get a not by putting the same proposition on both sides of the Sheffer stroke. And you can get an and by using, say you want to do P and Q, what you say is what that means then is 
this is either not P or not P. In other words, not P. This is either not Q or not Q. I'm sorry, this is P or Q, but that's, that's good enough. This is either not P or not P, therefore not P. This is either not Q or not Q, therefore not Q. This is either not not P or not not Q, which means either P or Q you get from that. So the point about the Sheffer stroke is it's a completely unnatural way of thinking, but you can get all of logic from it. So that idea of getting logic unnaturally, on the one hand, this is simpler. This seems to be Occam's razor. We've gotten it down to a single logical um, operation. But on the other hand, it's ridiculous. So you can say the same thing, and no one uses this in logic. Um, some computer scientists may use it um, when designing circuits, but otherwise no one uses it. So, um, uh, so what makes something simpler, according to Occam's razor, that's a human judgment. But they're equally true. There is no background against which the planets and stars are moving. They're just there. And they're moving with respect to each other, and that motion can be really complicated. But Newton's description of what they're doing is a lot easier for the mind to take in than Ptolemy's description of what they're doing. Newton's description of what they're doing is um, easier for us to picture than Ptolemy's. But it's not that Newton's is true and Ptolemy's is false. It's that Newton's is useful and Ptolemy's not so much. You can use Ptolemy, but you'd be crazy to do so. Um, and, don't, and the fact that Newton's is useful doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that it's right. Or if you tried using Einstein to figure out laws of motion, in most cases you would go crazy. Um, because in most cases, although Einstein actually is truer, it's also so much harder to do. And Newton gets so close to, uh, to correct approximations for almost every purpose that we use Newton's. Yeah. So I'm a little bit confused about when you're saying that uh, Ptolemy is just as correct as Newton. Because, I mean, I, I understand that in one sense, if you're just standing on the planet and have no other information or just trying to figure out what's going on with the lights above you, that both of their hypotheses uh, can, can explain what's happening. But... I mean, we, we've gone past that. We can, we can send people into space now. And? And uh, the, world isn't the, the world is not the center of everything. As far as we know. And Mars isn't beyond. Sure it is. Sure it is. The sun's that way, Mars is that way. It's way beyond it. Well, no, Venus is way beyond it. No, look, it's, you would have to say that they're moving in very complicated patterns. So if you, if you send a rocket around the sun, for example, um, in order to, you could calculate how to do it using Ptolemy's laws, where you would have to send the rocket, where it would have to take off, where it would have to go, where, where it would slingshot around the sun, and so on. You could calculate that according to Ptolemy's laws. The problem is you would think, okay, so we're going to send the rocket up, and its motion as it heads towards the sun is going to be something like this. And we've got to calculate all of that. Or you could say, you know what? Let's take a shortcut and use Newton's picture instead 
Each is translatable into the other, but let's just take the shortcut and use Newton's, and oh, the rocket goes like that. So we're assuming that straight lines are somehow closer to the truth than bizarre squiggles going in all directions, and that seems like a reasonable assumption. But it's nevertheless what's useful for us. Not There is no truth beyond what picture is the one we want to use, as long as the picture gets the right answers. Yeah? Well, no, tell, tell me, tell, oh, you mean about being, to, be, to be perceived? Okay, so the idea is that what it's true for then, it does seem like there would be something that you could learn from that. So if to be is to be perceived, someone would say, you know, what, hap what was happening to the universe before, let's say that, that there's only life on Earth, which is um, a hotly debated um, uh, guess. No one knows. Um, there's absolutely zero knowledge as to whether there's life anywhere else in the universe or not. Um, and so we could say what a Bayesian would say, one way of thinking about probability is when you are absolutely uncertain, when you have zero, zero knowledge about something, this is actually going to be important for Pascal, if you have zero knowledge about something, you have to set its likelihood as 50-50. Um, because that's what it means to have zero knowledge. If you had any knowledge, you could set its likelihood as more likely than not or less likely than so. But if you have zero knowledge, then the likelihood of something is 50-50. Um, so if you have zero knowledge of something, and if you don't think that there's a 50-50 chance of something, it means you don't have zero knowledge of it. If you think, you know, if you say, I just don't know whether, what's his name, the ex-governor of New Mexico who's running on the Libertarian Party, Johnson, is that his name? Um, anyhow, he's the Libertarian candidate for president. I, you know, he might be elected. I just don't know. If you think there's a 50-50 chance that he's going to be elected, you're wrong. There isn't. You actually do know that the odds against his election are very, very steep. So zero knowledge really means, if you don't say that, you have, that something is 50-50 chance, if you wouldn't take a 50-50 bet but would require a 75-25 bet or something, it means you don't have zero knowledge. Okay, so we have zero knowledge, let's say, about whether any other, there are any other, um, there's any other life in the universe. How do we define life? Let's define life as something which has some sentient responsiveness to its environment. Obviously, things, everything uh, responds to its environment. Look, the chalk just moved when I hit it. Um, but the chalk wasn't alive. It didn't say, oh, no, that big hand is coming at me mean. Um, that's just physics. So let's say that it's response to the environment that requires some kind of sentient, um, where we, we can define sentient extremely primitively, but sentient response to that environment. That is, notice and act on the basis of what you're noticing. This is controversial, and it may be BS, but let's stipulate that. So let's say there's no other life in the universe that sometime about three billion years ago, monocellular organisms started bubbling up in, on Earth in various, um, underwater in various places. Um, then we might be able to say, some people might argue, that before that happened, there was no universe because there was nothing being perceived. Now, that actually isn't what Berkeley would say. 
Um, for one thing, he believed in God, and he thought this was a proof for the existence of God. There clearly was a universe before um, humans were, went, were going around perceiving it, but if to be is to be perceived, how could there be a universe if there were no humans going around perceiving it? Easy! God was perceiving it, QED. So it's a proof for the existence of God for Barclay. But what you could say is, no, you know, there was no universe until some life forms started perceiving stuff and that perception brought them into existence. Now that's too simple an argument too, and it's too simple an argument because you can perceive the past. So you can bring the past, the past before perception comes into being does exist, but only comes into existence when it's perceived. So you perceive the past and yet, you're creating the past at the moment that it's perceived. Yeah? But that's still not, like, all that saying is, like, explaining what always happens. But since that never doesn't happen, it's just not, it's you, you Okay, so in 750 million years, the sun is going to explode. Do, do people know that? That Earth is going to, be burst, going to be burned to a cinder in about 750 million years? No, the, there's, that's when the, 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 sun, the sun is going to get super hot. I, excuse me, it's going to get super hot in 750 million years. It's going to turn into a red giant and actually absorb Earth in a couple of billion years. Now, life on Earth is about 3 billion years old, which means that it's about 80% over because in 750 million years, life on Earth is going to end. Um, so the sun has the sun has a couple billion more years as a main sequence star. Yeah. You're saying that uh, that Earth will be burnt to a crisp. So that mean it never So that could be something you could get from Barclay. <coughs> that at that point the universe will stop existing. Wait. If there's no other life. And yeah. If there's no God. Yeah. Because there'll be nothing perceived. Well, no, if we get off the Earth, that's fine. I'm just saying what the philosophical idea is. If for 700 million years we just sit around doing nothing, yeah. maybe. Jeffrey. I mean, I know that the sun burning up the Earth would make God not exist. But if we just sit around doing nothing, maybe. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. So there, you could. There are two things. So first of all, this is if you're if God doesn't exist, and there's nothing to perceive the universe, will it still exist? Now you could argue, yeah, it will, because we know what the future is, so we're perceiving the future now. That's a possibility. Um, so there, there are arguments there. The truth of the truth that to be is to be perceived is something that has been um, controversially confirmed in quantum quantum theory. That is, that observation um, affects the thing observed. You can't observe something without changing what you observe and making it, uh, making it into what you observe. Abby? So God himself? That, that's what Barclay says, yeah, as we perceive ourselves. I mean, Barclay, in some sense, is, is getting that from Descartes. Um, he's reverse, in one sense, he's reversing Descartes. We'll talk about Descartes. Um, okay, but back then to... Um, the word. So God says, let there be light, and there's light. God says that in the beginning. In the beginning, you can take a spatial, if you prefer, at the beginning of space-time. That is, there is this thing that exists in meta-time forever, 
Um, that is, it's simply an unchanging fact that there's a universe, and the universe is um, at a certain place in space-time, that place is where space-time is, and God, at the beginning of that place, says, let there be light. And that's just what happens there, just as um, this is tan, but that's glass. It's not that this happens first, it's just where it is. So at the place in the universe that God is saying, let there be light, um, that's the place of the universe that we call the beginning of the universe, just the way you call the beginning of the classroom that doorway. Um, however, John wants to go farther and say, um, God is saying something and making it happen. But in saying it, he somehow has to be the thing he's saying so that saying it is being itself. Usually we think of language as describing being. That is, um, canonically, the cat is on the mat or the book is on the table. And the book would be on the table whether I said it or not. But when God says, let there be light, that's not saying something that being then reflects. It's saying it into being. So, for John, this happens, has to happen simultaneously. God's, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, because God speaks it. So it's there. But he speaks it not as something separate from him, but he becomes his own speaking of it. And the Word was God. John then turns this into, and people interpreting John turn this into the Trinity. How, you ask? Um, well, they turn it into the Son. That is, the word of God is his instrument by which he does things. It is God, but it comes from God. It is God's offspring, which is also God. And therefore, the word is the son of God. That is um, a standard way of thinking about Jesus as godly, as divine, is that he is the word of God. So... Augustine starts fussing about this. And what he's particularly fussing about, this is the first fussing he does on page 161, we can finally start class, um, is at what point in saying let there be light did light come into existence? Was it when God said let was it when he said there? Was it when he said be? Or was it when he said light? Okay, so it's when he said light. But was it when he said the L in light? Or the T in light? So light slowly came into... Yeah. Okay, lights up, he said. And the light slowly got brighter until he stopped speaking. Um, could be. But Augustine doesn't want that to be because it's still turning. It's like what Aristotle says about the moment of transition. That is, Augustine wants God to be absolutely, omnipotently, infinitely effective, which means that his saying it has to make it happen, has to make a non-transitional shift from darkness to light. But he can't say it instantaneously. So the first thing Augustine argues is, okay, it's a metaphor. He doesn't really say it. It's the creation of light is being described as saying, let there be light. But what God does is lights. He just lights the world, lights the universe. 
and then that's described by John as though he said a word. And so that's Augustine's first thought. But Augustine, we're going to have to go back to this, um, but think about Macbeth, get ready for your quiz. Um, Augustine's first thought is something like this. If we're trying to figure out what the meaning of the instant is, that is, the only time is now, we also notice that when we say a sentence, a sentence takes a little bit of time to say. Even the sentence, let there be light, takes a little bit of time to say. So where is the meaning of the sentence? When someone says something to you and you understand it, or when you intend to say something to them, Where's the moment that you understand it? Where's the moment that you're saying the thing you want to say? Where's the moment that you're understanding the thing someone else is saying? So Augustine is pushing very hard on the analogy, which isn't an analogy. It's actually a kind of, a kind of um, a substructure of time, that when you say a sentence, it takes time to say that sentence. And yet, nevertheless, and the meaning of the sentence isn't in any syllable or in any phoneme. The meaning of the sentence, when I say a sentence, it, it takes time to say it, isn't in what, it's not in eh, it's not in n, it's not in i, it's not in s, it's not in a. It's somehow all there in the entire sentence, and yet it's a single meaning that can't be attached to any moment in the sentence. So, one possibility that I think we all agree with, it can't quite be true, but it feels like it is true, is the meaning of the sentence is when you get to its end. I think, therefore, I am. It's after I say the am that you understand the whole thing. And until then, you don't. But you kind of do. You have to be putting it together already from meaningful parts. But still, there seems to be a point where there's a transition from what's that person saying to I understand what that person just said. And for Augustine, that helps to think about the nature of time because it takes time to say a sentence, and yet you then get it, the whole of the sentence that came to you in parts. Okay, uh, see you Wednesday. Uh, you will we'll talk about this more. Think about it. Maybe that'll be the quiz question. Yeah.